Okay, here we are. I'm Brian. That's Harry. Hello. Howdy. Good, How are you this good. morning? Ah, it is the morning. You give away our time of recording secret. Well, I mean, I'm sure enough people will watch this and uh, figure out the, where the sun is. And you can kind of do it that way. Uh, I don't know where you are in the world. Don't tell anyone. It's a- I have great unnatural light in my oh. room to make it seem as if I'm perennially awake in the morning. Um, I mean, it's important to be awake in the morning, I guess, uh, especially if you're on a podcast. Speaking of podcasts, do you do you maybe want to in- introduce yourself to people oh. who are listening currently? Where are we? What is this? What, what is, is this thing? <laughs> who am I? That existential dread creeps in again. The morning sunlight. Uh, my name is Harry Wolf. I have. Oh, who am I? Yes, right. Oh, I am a director of engineering at MongoDB. Uh, I've been there for about. Five, nope, I've been there for five years this month, longest job I've had, which is huzzah for me. Um, I uh, have been a manager now for around five years uh, in the industry for over 10 years. Um, historically, a UI engineer, uh, making pixels pushed around on the browser and then being told that they were pushed the wrong direction and pushing them back. So that was a lot of fun earlier in my career. Uh, I also have a YouTube channel that I post uh, free content supported by ads supplied by YouTube uh, about front end in general. And occasionally I get um, feisty and talk about rust because I aspire toward more um, strange parts of coding. <laughs> but that's a weekly YouTube channel about coding, JavaScript mostly on Mondays. And that's the 411. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a, it's a fair introduction. Great work. Yeah. Thank you. I, I want to. <laughs> so I, actually, I want to let's let's talk about YouTube or at least your YouTube channel. But let's start with Rust. What? what oh, God. What do you mean? What do you? What, what am I doing? Yeah. yeah, right. I'm just trying to just trying to stay rusty. I do it all for the jokes is really what it is because <laughs> humor keeps me young and graying. Uh, I don't know. Rust is, I like to challenge myself. It was funny. I was talking to some friends yesterday about note-taking apps. And it reminded me that in 2013, I decided to make an iOS, a native iOS note-taking app, which like the source code is on my GitHub page. It's all in Objective-C. So I don't know what I was doing with my, so it's a strange use of my spare time, but that's kind of where I am with Rust is, um, uh, tickling my brain in ways that hasn't been tickled before. It's a weird metaphor. Uh, by learning things that I'm not familiar with. Uh, <laughs> I still can't get over that's a really strange metaphor. Um, <laughs> I'm not able to keep a straight face, but if you're listening, I'm like, don't say anything about that. Just let it ride. Just go. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I've always been a front end developer with JavaScript, which is a very high level garbage collected language that has a lot of the low level concerns handled for me. And I've always been curious about how things work beneath the hood, right? It's always, Always asking the question why, getting an answer, then asking why again, and kind of digging deep. I draw the line at the circuitry, like I will not get into hardware because you make a mistake there and then you have to like pay to replace it, whereas software you just reinstall it, so it's not too bad. Um, but Rust is just, I mean, it's definitely in vogue. It doesn't hurt that it's the thing to talk about. And it's curious because, of, I mean, the novel thing with Rust is how it handles memory management. And that's the thing that's new as far as modern programming languages go. So um, I have excitement about that. Uh, 
my biggest pain point in learning Rust has been what do I use it for? Because I don't really have any immediate needs outside of just yeah. like arbitrary programs. But um, it's it's mostly a, a curiosity to scratch. Yeah. I, I, the reason I ask is that um, I have, I mean, I am familiar with your um, positions on JavaScript, which we'll get into in a minute. But, uh, but also like for the rust content that we put out like i um you know i've said it before and that the the rust community is um passionate and so that's both great and when we screw up i mean it's great when we screw up because they let us know but sometimes we don't screw up and they let us know that we so it's kind of like well all right i I understand it's an interesting i mean i think all communities are obviously passionate i think where rust gets more honestly i think it probably comes from a place of insecurity if I'm uh, brave enough to say that, because it's still so young that to make mistakes has a far deeper impact than were to say make a mistake in Java, where you have decades of legacy that you can't, like that cements very deep in the ground. You're not moving that. Rust is still close to the surface. Yeah. No, I do find that's that. Well, I find that a lot of people say I would love or I want to learn Rust, but either I don't have time or I don't exactly know how. And I, that's, I mean, the way I learn anything, I, it's a two-step process for me. It's one, I read as much as I can about it. And I, the metaphor I always use is I like to get a layout of the house. Like where's the bathroom, where's the kitchen, where's the bedroom, like understand where things are. Mm-hmm. And then when I actually get down to actually using when living in the house, you start understanding like all the weird idiosyncrasies and that just is a result of throwing yourself at the problem. So I've yeah. read a lot about rust now, but I'm, I've been trying to throw myself at a at, to solve a programming problem and just fail <laughs> repeatedly, and that's the biggest part of it. It's just not making sure you get back up every time it hits you down. So it will just keep knocking you down. Mm. Is there anyone that's been really helpful for you for Rust that you kind of would stand out or the Rust book, the free book that they have is fantastic. I've I yeah. read it on vacation once because that's my <laughs> choice of free time usage. Uh, at the, I don't want to say it. But... <laughs> yeah, no, I'm aware. <laughs> yeah, okay. I was at the poolside, like my my wife's reading like a, a whatever. And then I'm just like, ah, oh, Russ, how to do memory management with a box vector ref. Okay, good. Uh, <laughs> it's also a great sleeping aid too. So, you know, both for <laughs> stimulation yeah. and uh, uh, rest station. I don't know where it is. <laughs> Uh, yeah, the Rust book's great. I mean, honestly, I've just gone to all the official documentation. It's the Rust book. You get a, a overview. There's um, Rust by example on there as well to kind of you know show how things are done in Rust. Um, there's koans that kind of have little small programming problems that you can approach and then solve for to kind of you know actually uh, put finger to keyboard and actually apply yourself. Um, what was the last one? Uh, only recently have I started actually reading the like SDK docs, like actually like how things work. And that only started happening as I was trying to code a program myself, where I had to actually reference the docs, read the manual, understand what I was doing, but I wasn't even up to that stage until I actually had the background general knowledge. Mm. Okay. That all checks out. I, I, uh, before <laughs> we, I just wanted to pull on that thread as soon as it, we didn't plan any of this. I just, I heard, uh, Russ and I was like, I want to hear what he has to say about Russ. I think probably now it makes sense to like, take a step back, talk about YouTube, talk about why your YouTube channel exists, 
Um, and then I'll ask you questions about like the things you say on YouTube and maybe we can have a conversation about those things. So question number one is why, why do you have a YouTube channel? Well, what is that? Boredom. Boredom. No. Yeah. Uh, so there's, there's the law. So I used to be the guy in the office that would come up to you and be like, Hey, did you hear about this 0.1.1 release of this new software that you ever heard about? And people would be like, no, Harry, I don't care. Harry, go away, <laughs> Harry. Uh, <laughs> But my excitement was always around that, just like new, fun, exciting things. And I eventually channeled that into a podcast where I kind of model myself off the, uh, the Daily Show, but weekly, where I talk about all the newest uh, front-end happenings. And I did that for around two years with a friend of mine, and it was fun, and then it kind of petered out. And I migrated it to YouTube, where I was then doing that on YouTube, and it was in video form. And then I kind of started morphing into just doing um, general YouTube content. Of just talking about code. Uh, and then I just started just not, then I just didn't stop, uh, <laughs> with, uh, which is how it goes. Uh, the line I always say to people is, you know, if I stopped doing YouTube, I would just then probably watch more TV, which isn't the most like delightful um, replacement. So, you know, that's an impetus, but uh, definitely going through my own bout of like, you know, trying to refine my, uh, joy of the channel because I think I've been been in the weeds for a little bit in the past year, like personally, <laughs> frankly. Um, and I'm trying to just refine what videos give me joy to like then share that on the channel as well. Do you feel like um, you like are you in your own just kind of just the way that you pass the time? Like, are you looking at um, kind of what's trending in, in front end? Like, are you always keeping up with GitHub and like that sort of thing? Like are, that's, and then, then the kind of the light bulb went off and you're like, I should put this, I should have a platform for this. Yeah. I mean, it was, even to this day, I still keep up to date with what's going on. Uh, I used to, you know, read 60% of articles that I'd find. And I think I'm down to like 30% now just due to other time commitments. But mm. the impetus was the, the original drive was just if occasionally eventually i found people at my jobs that enjoyed my enthusiasm so you know <laughs> validated that there was something valuable there and then i think one day literally the thought was like well if they find it valuable then maybe the internet might as well and it was really that thought that kind of opened that door to experiment yeah uh, the reason i ask is um uh, kaylin who's been on this uh podcast a few times um but he's um our front end developer at LogRocket, and he's exactly the same way. Um, and we couldn't, you know, we meaning the content team, like I couldn't do uh, the job near like without him going, Hey, is this like all the time I will say to him, does this topic, does anyone care about this? And he'll tell me straight up, like, no, it doesn't like no one cares or here's how it could matter. Um, but it's that kind of, and, and I can't go out and find another, like another Kalen, for example. So you, um, which is what I liked about, like, I've watched some of your videos and I like that, you know, you have opinions on things and you share those things. And, uh, he does the same thing, just not on YouTube. So I, that's why I was asking is I'm interested in kind of like that. So, Cause it's really not, I don't want to say that people don't in the, at least in the web dev space, don't share their opinions, but I like hearing, you know, I don't know if I want to, well, I try not to share my first impulse because that's yeah. usually wrong. So I definitely have learned, especially as I've gotten older and slower, I've been better at just suppressing that first knee jerk, blah, and then kind of refining it into blur. And that's kind of what you see on YouTube. <laughs> that's a great way to say, yeah, I like that. 
Thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it is, it's super accurate. I, I get it. Yeah. Um, okay. I, I almost kind of want to segue into like, all right, great. So you take your first impulse and then you go, and then it's like, well, also, um, the idea that, what it, the idea that front end is stable. Well, that's my newest one, right? Which is actually funny. I, I recorded that video. So I, yeah. one of my recent videos was, you know, front end is boring because it's stable. And it was funny because I was actually looking on Twitter that past week and all of a sudden I saw all these um, tweets about how front has never been more exciting and changing. And I was like, well, that's not what I said in my, like it was before my video got released and it was in that space of recording it and releasing it that Twitter was like, front ends are exciting. But the main point, I mean, in all honesty, I think most of my points and opinions are boring when you get down to it because they usually distill down to it depends and it's, I try to keep as close to objective truth as possible, which is also subjective, what's objective, but that's a different podcast. Uh, <laughs> um, but basically the way in which front-end applications are written, at least like the UI approach, like how you actually code some button and that gets onto the screen has largely remained unchanged since React did change everything. Uh, I started in professional development in 2010 when jQuery was still exciting and fairly new. Uh, 2012 Backbone was rising and that was also very new. And then you have AngularJS and those are kind of the three paradigms that at least I lived through. So that's where I think they matter because that's my perspective. But they mostly took a, mo a fairly imperative way of, you know, making UI on the screen where, you know, this happens, so you do this, and then this happens, you do this. The React made the whole declarative model, which people have talked about ad nauseum, where you just say, this is what I want, and you handle the rest. And that's kind of been the MO of most modern frameworks. And that hasn't really changed. Like, there's been color and um, accents added around it. You have Svelte taking a compiler-first approach as opposed to a runtime approach. I, I, uh, I think Rich Hickey, uh, not Rich, Rich Harris on the podcast before, talking about that as well. Um, but the true excitement, in my opinion, of front end is, is outside the browser in many ways where you have tooling looking towards Rust to provide features and functionalities that are not possible with just JavaScript. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting to me, like the, I've mentioned this a few times in the, in the past that we, uh, on the log rocket blog, ran a survey and asking people what they didn't like about front end and far and away, the winner was, um, complexity. You know, there's like just way too much stuff. Um, so when I see that and maybe I'm not going to accuse you of clickbait, but the, Oh, <laughs> maybe please. But, so actually that's a funny thing. I've actually been trying to veer towards clickbait more <laughs> for, uh, for the views. Because, yeah. For the, okay. I mean, so, I mean, someone, uh, a very smart uh, gentleman gave a good piece of advice to me. Uh, they know who they are. Uh, that, you know, clickbait in some ways says more about the, the viewer than it does about the author. Because who's, who's, what is the honey attracting? Like, like you might be making the honey, but it doesn't exist without some bees flocking to it. Bears. Yeah, no, I, I, um, so there, having been um, doing content for, mostly web devs over the last few years. Um, Clickbaity titles, I have the data, like it does work. <laughs> the, the The difference is um, you have to deliver. Like yeah. you can do, you can 
entice people to read, which is a charitable way of describing clickbait. Um, but you know, they're not going to come back if you, if it's garbage. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, also I get accused fairly often of like blatant content marketing and it's just like, yeah, like that's, yes, that is what we, of course that's what we do. It, it's, um, it's said as if it's a bad thing, but it's literally like, it's, it's important. <laughs> like I would love to give this stuff away for free, but like, it, and it is free. You just have to suffer a small ad at the bottom that says like, did you know that log rocket existed? If you're right. interested, you could click this button. Anyway. I mean, clickbait isn't a thing that's just from the internet. You talk about newspapers where they have leads that I'm sure, I'm sure people sweated over to make sure they could put in there. Like they, both, All you have is the title and the small lead of some newspaper clipping to entice people to read the content. And that's the original clickbait in some ways. Hmm. That's uh, it's, it's I try not to do, you know, we don't do big declarative statements uh, on the blog, mostly because nobody wants that. But it is funny, like the 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 clickbait argument, I guess. I don't know. I don't think we get what, accused of it all that much anymore. You want to have one step foot in the provocative, one step foot in truth. As long as you can bridge. And I think to your point, it's very true for web dev, especially where you want to make sure that you do have that bridge towards um, meat. Because if there's just cotton candy there, it's just going to give people a stomachache. Yeah, I do. And I can't tell. This is something that I think about a lot um, is there are, I don't know if they're necessarily uh, tropes, but there are kind of like, we can call them frameworks. Like these, this is how you write a front end blog post. And it's kind of like this versus that, or like, this is how you do a thing or like why you should care about, like there's probably 10 or 15. And I don't know who decided on that. You know, like, where did this come from? Um, and maybe just because, like, and, I, and of course, you know, we do it because that's what people identify in their Google search results and go like, okay, that's the thing I want to look at. Um, but, yeah, there are so many other options that we could go with. But when, whenever it's evolution. I... Yeah. It's evolution because, you know, someone started it and that's the one that won and then it kind of grows and it went from, I have 10 things to tell you about this topic that you're going to enjoy. And then it got down through many generations of 10 things that are great. You're like, oh, well, there's that. The, wolf, the wolves used to eat us and now they're our dogs. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny, like the, and then I, well, when I ask uh, developers, some developers, like Kalen, for example, when I ask him like what he thinks we should do, um, you know, as to evolve, he just goes, just charts. Like all I want is charts. Show me the things that he's like, I just want to see the things that were, that do this. Like, you don't want, you're not interested in the words. He's like, no, I'll figure it out myself. <laughs> okay. Well, I don't, you might be different. Yeah. So one of the things that uh, talking about or thinking about uh, the evolution of content, our uh, our content on being a an engineering manager always does super poorly. Um, like there's, and I understand why, kind of, um, but I don't think it's the quality of the of of the content. I, but anyways, I bring this up because you do talk about being. Uh, an engineering manager a lot. And I think that it probably is um, perhaps more successful than what we put out. So I'd like to hear your thoughts on like, how do you think about putting that stuff out? Is it just kind of like things that come to your head and you just want to rip out an episode on that? Or I mean, the best thing about engineering content is that it doesn't require as much preparation than yeah. technical content because it's mostly verbal and not as hard 
which isn't to diminish the value of the content, in my opinion. Like, I still think it's valuable and like put effort into making sure it's good, but uh, it's mostly coming from within that it is. I mean, most of the work is just organizing my thoughts that are delivered in a way that there's a narrative that can be delivered. Even for my YouTube channel, though, those videos, I think I've managed to make them better performing videos, but historically they've also been pretty um, underwhelming uh, performance for those. Uh, and I, I think, you know, the obvious reasons that I would point to as well is uh, it's a smaller audience that you're targeting. Uh, it's also the niche that I've initially carved for myself isn't there. If I was a management YouTube channel, then maybe I'd attract people there. But to have an only management YouTube channel sounds scary to me. To have content to power that weekly, uh, that would definitely drop down the frequency there. I'm actually thinking up a video that I might record tonight if I get the energy, uh, another manager video. Uh, the impetus is uh, this month is my fifth year anniversary at MongoDB, which is huge for me. This is the longest I've ever been at a company. Longest before that was three years. Typically, at tech, it's like two years is the, the average that you hop, skip, and jump. Um, so I want to like brag about that and like talk about it because I like myself. <laughs> but just just having a video that's like, hey, I'm five years at MongoDB, yay! Like that doesn't you know people are selfish by default. So how is that gonna like? What is it for me? Like there's nothing valuable there. And I kind of was meditating on that. And there's another video that I've been wanting to do for a while that about you know why people leave jobs or why you should know to leave a job. And I have, you know, thoughts around that, which I'll save for the video, but kind of the title that I'm kind of, you know, distilling down to is three reasons you should leave your job. <laughs> and then in there, I can talk about how I have not left my job because those reasons do not apply to me right now. So it's kind of like weaving in my personal and actually is pretty woven, I guess. It's a nice wicker basket. Not the wicker man. Um, sorry, I have like random tangents that are just. I got the reference. I maybe Thank hopefully, they, yeah, yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, I, I know that I'm old when no one gets my references anymore. That's how I know that it's time for me to clock out and uh, <laughs> skedaddle. Uh, <laughs> it always hurts my soul when a reference is unmet. But I, yeah, <laughs> for me, for me, I've realized that it's uh, just stop making Simpsons references at work because nobody's just stare at you and go like, I don't. Well, that's that's a deep trove to pull from too. Well, for you have like this, well, there's a, there's like surface level Simpsons jokes that like, you know, are generally applicable. And you have like the, the niche ones because you oh, have sure. that, that so I don't, I don't have the niche ones at all. Be like, yeah, I get that one. Like, no, no, because that was in like 94 and right. you know, it's was not the focus of the episode. But anyways, all it was tappa, um, tappa, tappa. That's always, that's my gold standard. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> You got me. Your, your audience of one thought that was funny. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's funny, like the thinking, like I've seen plenty of, you know, like um, how to prepare for an engineering interview, you know, like those, those are very popular and you're suggesting the opposite, how to, how to create, like how to not interview, how to leave your job. Um, well, and it's I have more like, like, yeah, it's more like why, like, why should you like, you know, does your manager suck? You should leave type of thing. Yeah. Well, I think I've seen plenty of content out there. That's if you are wondering whether your manager sucks or even if you just like are thinking about, should I not be here? Then maybe you should go, which I don't think is true. Like I don't, now we are definitely wandering into the, the territory of the video you'd like to make, but I mean, I'm not too upset about that. Like, you know, yeah. I've also learned in my old age that repetition eventually gets the point across and there's no, you know, 
if it, if something's so fragile that you can't repeat it, then it's not worth saying. So, you yeah. know, go for it. Okay. So like, I don't think like it's okay to evaluate. Isn't that the whole point? Like you're evaluating what your future is like and it is possible to, for new information to like, you should bring it up. Like that's really, I think like, if you think that you're not happy at a company or your role or whatever it is, like you should maybe go to your manager. I don't, I don't know how that conversation would go and be like, listen, I think that you're doing a bad job and I'm unhappy with you, but maybe like if it would work anywhere, I suppose it would work in engineering. I mean, it's also, you know, validating your perspective of reality is true, right? Like if you're unhappy and you're uncomfortable, can you turn to your manager to validate that's real? Or do you have to turn to a friend to confirm that? Because that's where a lot of my insecurities come from is like, I'll have some belief, but I want to make sure that it's one that is shared outside my own two eyes, uh, which, you know, ideally you can rely on your manager to say like, yes, like you're not growing, like you're not growing because I failed in some ways like, is ideally the conversation that is there, right? Like I haven't been challenging you. Uh, you're not really getting new things to do. So like, yeah, let's either give you new challenges or you. there's no more room for you to grow here, not for lack of you, but for lack of the company's needs type of thing, which isn't even something I'm going to talk about in the video, but that's still an interesting point. Mm. Yeah, I think that would be hard for for some people um, to like go to a peer and be like, are you having a nice time? And if they say, yeah, <laughs> and you're like, well, I'm not. And and I guess it depends on what you're working on or just all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Uh, it's also like the question of, is, is it okay to leave a company because you're bored? And I wrestled with that for a long time. And I think that's related to what we were just talking about. Like if you're not being challenged, if you're not being stimulated and you crave that, you need that, uh, you, it kind of show itself as boredom. Um, I think that is a very valid reason to look elsewhere. For sure. I think that can be pushed and I'm not being contrarian here. Like I think if you're bored in really any walk of life, like any, you should maybe consider a change if it's not. But on the other hand, for your career, like sometimes boredom, like you can do other things while being bored. Yeah. In, in well, your it's profession. like, yeah. is it endemic or is it just mm, transitory? Mm. Now we are on a, a, a truly deep conversation about boredom, which deep thoughts with deep thoughts with pod rocket. <laughs> Kate, Kate's in the background listening. It's like, what are you guys doing? <laughs> like I, like I did a good job, you know, outlining this, what this should be like. And you guys are talking about what it's like being bored. Uh, I hate you, Brian, which is fair. <laughs> um, okay. So, but, but so you do have some uh, a video on like why engineers engineering managers fail, right? So like, can we? Oh sure, yeah. Can we like, talk did I make about a video? I mean, I I I think you did. No, no, I've I've now done YouTube for over three years. Where I actually was preparing a video like two weeks ago. I was like, you know, should you use TypeScript? And I was like, you know, I did the outline. I've already recorded. Then I searched my past videos for TypeScript, and I was like, oh, I made this video already. <laughs> I was like, god damn it. <laughs> That's pathetic. <laughs> yeah, we that, that that happens a lot when you when you put in a lot of content. Fortunately, you're like, did we already do this? Um, well, I mean, so you at some point you made a decision to uh, get into engineering management, right? I don't know how much you've talked about that. And then at some point you made you 
you <laughs> notice that there was a, some kind of pattern, right, with like why engineering managers fail in the first place. Maybe you could talk about either both of those things, really. Like, how did you make the decision to go from contributor, individual contributor to management? And then how do you see why some succeed and why others fail? Sure. Yeah. Uh, uh, went into management because of boredom. <laughs> it's a very simplistic way of taking it, but I got a little bit, um, I got bored of doing this. I, I, I found what I was doing as an IC uh, too reductive for my taste, where it was like, here's a thing to code, code the thing. Okay, good. And like, that's horrifically reductive, but that's where I was at. And I was mm-hmm. not really finding joy there anymore. And I've always been, you know, on the UI side of things, I enjoy how things are made, but also like why things are made. Like saying to make a form uh, is not enough for me. I need to know why and how it's being used. Even if it might not inform or change what I'm doing, it helps give me um, uh, incentive and, and you know, in, internal word to do that. Um, so I've always, been on the, I've always enjoyed talking to product managers and design, understanding more how they think and just having a more general overlay of how things are decided and put together. And then I also enjoy, you know, I find myself to be a fairly uh, personable person, able to, you know, talk to other people and, you know, potentially uh, focus or rally them around some need or cause. And that's kind of, you know, where I started looking into management and curious about what it was like. It was mostly just like, can I do it was the first question. Like, can I do management? Is it something that I'm capable of? Uh, And then I got the opportunity to try it first at a startup where I was leading a small team. And I think that my responsibilities, I always split things with technical and non-technical skills. And at that job, I think I was, you know, 80% technical, 20% non-technical. And then I came to Long B from there, started as an IC and then got promoted to be a manager again. And I slowly started to see those, um, that ratio uh, invert just due to needs of the team, but also just seeing my own uh, stress level increasing. Like the higher the amount of code that I would do, the higher my stress would become because then I still have all the non-technical work required of me that I didn't have time to do during the day because I was doing technical work. Uh, the weird thing about going into management is that all the skills that you've learned and gotten good at don't help you anymore. You might have learned how to swing a hammer and hit a nail on the head for the first time really well as an, as an IC and you know put a four by four together real fast. And as soon as you become a manager, you're the one now saying, here's the outline of where things should go. But I'm not swinging that hammer anymore. And like that impulse to know to want to swing that hammer is very strong because you know you can do it, but then you're not empowering the team. You're also not making sure that the bathroom's being installed correctly. I don't, all my metaphors are about houses because uh, I listened to Brick House this morning, which is a lie, just a reference to make. Um, <laughs> I did. I mean, I did notice there were house metaphors, but I, you know, again, it's not my least, place to judge. At least they're not in the toilet. Well, the in the <laughs> we're not there yet. But okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So, uh, yeah, there's. Um, so that's true, right? Like I did the same thing becoming, you know, um, I see and then going into management. And one thing that I, um, would say a lot is like, I felt like I wasn't doing, and in some ways it's a very kind of, um, it's almost immature on my part. Like I was like, well, I feel like I'm not doing real work anymore. You know, like, I feel like I'm, I'm not making stuff instead. I'm, I'm now I can understand intellectually, you know, 
I am helping other people in their develop their careers and doing stuff that they haven't had an opportunity to do and, and all of those things. But there is something in, in me and I suspect a lot of people where it's like, you do feel, you know, I'm in meetings all day. I'm not the one that's responsible for making the thing that people enjoy directly, which again is super, it's so linear. Like what, like if you know, if you just, mm. Well, it's also like if you got used to drinking Coca-Cola for many years and it was told it's not healthy and you switch to water, you're not going to enjoy water right away. Like switching into meetings all day, you're not going to enjoy that right away because you got used to doing the work for a while. So there's definitely this um, transition period where you have to kind of reacclimate. It's also all the metrics of your past success have gone away too. Like you're not being evaluated on how many articles you're writing, how much code you're, how many lines of code you're writing. You're being evaluated on these very um, abstract goals. Um, I'm trying to think if I agree. I mean, obviously there's a difference in, in marketing and engineering, but in marketing there are some some very concrete goals. But like the goals are, did, did people come and read the thing? Like, you know what I mean? Like the, it's, it's that. It's not, was well, it it's, good? Yeah. It's rather than one one thing, it's one campaign, right? Exactly. So like the your purview becomes and then you yourself are it's impossible for you to, you know, make every individual thing succeed. You just have to make the the, the campaign itself succeed. And that's kind of true for engineering as well. Like you're not gonna be coding every project, but you have to still make sure that every project succeeds, and that's a very different thing to accomplish. Did you feel equipped to, like, when you went into management, did you feel equipped to, to um, not just manage people, but, like, to coach them, to listen to their problems, to sort that out? Like, because I think a lot of times people are surprised at what you end up hearing in those one-on-one meetings, not just about you, just about everything. So I, I got to cheat because I was in, I, I did therapy in my teens, so I got to just cheat and just, I was like, oh, I've done this. This isn't, because after a while, one-on-ones can turn into that. I think, honestly, I think healthy one-on-ones can just not, don't look too dissimilar to therapy, except you're not really delving into yeah. issues when you were eight, just issues about like, you know, yep. the eight things you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. The, it, was, it was really, I think the biggest challenge was shedding my IC responsibilities and under, and being okay with that. Um, yeah. That was the hardest thing for me. Yep. hundred percent agree. I said that it was true for me too. Like it was, it was very much like, because I felt really, no, I feel like I'm in therapy. I feel, uh, I felt very, a lot of ownership over that, you know, like this is yeah. my baby, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think a lot of people feel similarly. And there's also just, I mean, there, there are new things for people management that you just don't get practice at. If you've never done it before and you hear about it and you understand it until you actually feel it. It's a whole different, you know, process to go through and then just fail. <laughs> doing that. That's a weird thing too. It's like, you have to fail again to things that you've never done before and being okay with that and learning how to, you know, um, iterate on that in a very timely manner because it's people that you're iterating with. Right. And that's sensitive. It is. There is a certain amount of emotional intelligence that's kind of critical. And you, I don't, I'm sure you can get better at it. I know that there are, you know, lots of formal classes out there and but it, it, whether or not they resonate with the individual is, um, yeah, depends on, because I've been to some formal management training and to me, 
it's kind of there's things that are like super obvious like this isn't yeah yes you're right i should tell my team what's going on like you know well so actually for the longest time i refused to read management books because i had hubris i was like i know these things blah 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 blah. so i'm finally reading my i have a list now of books to read uh also in large part just so when i ask people for advice they can no longer tell me to read these books (laughs) i just need to cross it off my list of things that people can suggest to me so i can go beyond that so i'm reading the manager's path right now by camille fournier uh and it's good uh again it's not things that are revolutionary to me but what's actually really nice about it is that because it's a book and it's been iterated on uh thoughts and ideas that i've had are very nicely put succinctly into the book and you can kind of see ideas thrown at me that i'm like oh this is the thing but put in words that i can actually then repeat outward again and that's been actually very uh nice to read Okay, so when you were making the decision between, you know, like, should I go from uh, an IC to management? um, Did you consider going into product at all? Because I feel like those technical PMs um, are, you know, like, they're very much in demand. Um, Yeah, is that something that and you you had mentioned earlier that uh, you liked talking to product folks? So I'm wondering, is this something you considered? Yeah, heavily, actually. Uh, that was a great question. Yeah, for a while, I was like, I want to do product. I really want to do product. It sounds really interesting. Uh, it seems like they have a lot of fun. They kind of dream up what we're going to work on. They talk to people. Like, it's all this cool stuff. And then uh, I didn't just because that path is a greater reset for my career than going into technical management. Like, that's really a career pivot. Even though it's the same industry, it's still a whole different set of practices. But then as I've gotten older and as I've learned more about like the day-to-day going-ons of a product manager, the more grateful I am, I never entertained that thought beyond just an idle curiosity because I hear about, you know, they have to talk to customers and then listen to customers. It's not just be like, hey, you like our stuff? You want more of it? It's like, no, what's your problem? Let me hear about it. Like that's therapy there for the company. And that's yeah. exhausting. That's not a thing that I find enjoyable, like talking to customers and soliciting that feedback and then distilling it. And then the most... Um, unenjoyable part of that is then then taking those that feedback and applying it to the company roadmap, like that bridging of like from customer to like the the roadmap, like that is that is a lot of that is laborious. That is not something that I would. I mean, I could do it, I think, but not something that I would really enjoy to do forever because that's a long. Then I've now written more documents as an engineering manager, like design documents, which product managers do. Mm. So like I'm not as opposed to that, but you know. There's this big, uh, you dip more into sales territory, I think is what it is, which is not something that I, it's not sales in the sense of like selling a product, but in the sense of, you know, selling a relationship and like selling and like trying to improve mm. that. But there is, I mean, there's a big, um, like I'm talking to more and more product folks this month and, um, you know, there's a big demand or I don't know, demand, they're interested uh, in acquiring more technical skills. And I don't think it's because um, they're interested necessarily in like actually, you know, writing code. It's um, so that they can be more persuasive, um, either internally, you know, and so if you if you came from engineering, and you're a technical PM, you know, like, I would think that would be much easier for you to kind of talk to the engineering team and explain this is why we're doing this feature. This is how we can do it in this time. And um, in a way, and, and basically speak the language like that to me makes sense. And whether or not you enjoy it is kind of up to you. 
Yeah, I mean, it's also interesting because the role and scope of a product manager varies greatly with the size of the company. Oh, for sure. Like, yeah. I hear about the product managers talking to other companies, like enterprise companies at MongoDB, and I'm like, terrified. <laughs> Frankly, terrified of the people they're talking to. So I'm like, that's, I, I feel way out of my league there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's, it's, believe me, I'm, uh, there's, it's so different depending on, the PM function is very different depending on kind of the vertical you're in, the size of your company, the stage of your company, you know, like it's, it's a, it's a wild but, place. But still like, regardless of the size and the complexity, if you're a good product manager, you still have a lot of, you know, relationships to build, a lot of documents to bridge mental thoughts. And there's all that work of making sure that the business is growing. Um, which again, is not, that's not where my joy Rest. It's more like what's yeah. the what's the how can we build the product? Like, what's a fun, exciting thing to do? That's what I enjoy. But the prerequisites to get there, which is like the meat and cheese of the pro- weird the meat and cheese of the product manager. I'm just gonna double down. Uh, is not is not it's like a stomach ache. It's not what would I enjoy. <laughs> Today we <laughs> found out that meat and cheese is not something that Harry enjoys. Yeah, I don't know what. <laughs> just lots of people don't. Uh, <laughs> oh, uh, this has been one of my favorite episodes. I don't know that we have followed a single thread. Um, if you're in your car or walking, or uh, hopefully you've enjoyed the time with us. Um, is there anything that we should that you would like to promote that you'd like to tell people to listen to? Go find. Well, this I is typically what I. Yeah, I'd, lo- I'd love to hear people's favorite metaphor, first of all, or uh, <laughs> weird reference. Uh, <laughs> would love to hear that. Wicker uh, Man is probably going to be a tops, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then also, yeah, I have a YouTube channel. Uh, you can easiest way to find it is by my Twitter account. So twitter.com slash hswolf. It's Harry, middle name Spencer. I mean, that's a secret. And Wolf with two Fs, the extra F for good luck, because we all need some good luck. <laughs> Uh, or just ancestors that had it spelled that way. And that's kind of it. Uh, MongoDB is hiring always, so you're always welcome to apply there. I feel like I'm obliged to mention that. Uh, I mentioned, uh, yeah, that's enough. Awesome. Thank <laughs> you for coming on Pod Rocket. Good luck to you. Good luck to the meat and cheese. The meat and cheese <laughs> and the audience for making it through this episode. <laughs> We'll see you next time. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Pod Rocket. Find us at Pod Rocket Pod on Twitter, or you could always email me, even though that's not a popular option. It's Brian at Log Rocket.